following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. You can turn your Bibles to Romans 11. Romans 11 today. I'm thankful to be back up here. I took last week off, um, had a little surgery the prior week, and feeling a lot better. And it was hard to set last week. And so I'm. Uh, Excited to be back up here. Praise the Lord for oh, the great ministry that Pastor Tim had last week, and so thankful for that. And, uh, and but excited to continue with our series today through the book of Romans. So we'll be in verses 17 through 21, as you can see on the screen. Um, and if you, got a pew, if you need a Bible, there's a few Bibles around, so you can grab one of those and take a look at the text. Uh, but before we, uh, before we look at the text, uh, last Sunday... Uh, the 2023 season came to an end for my beloved Chicago Cubs. I, I know you all care deeply about the Cubs, but anyway, let me, let me just sorrow here for a bit. So it was a sad and, and kind of disappointing end to the season. And uh, now Cubs fans, we are used to disappointment, very used to disappointment. And so, you know, our expectations are generally kind of low. So, so the Cubs had a couple of rough years, and so coming into the year, Cubs fans were not expecting a dominant World Series champion. Really, I mean, everyone was just saying at the beginning of the year, if we can just be competing for a playoff spot to the very end, we will be happy. And those hopes came true. The Cubs were not eliminated from playoff contention until last Saturday, the, the, the second to last day of the year. So Cubs fans are ecstatic, right? No, of course not. And uh, see, the story goes, early in July, the, the Cubs had a bad record. They were way behind in the standings. And it was looking like it was going to be a very, another just end of, of just an uncompetitive season, meaningless game for the last couple months of the year. And so Cubs fans were pretty bummed. But then, about the time we got back from Mammoth, they started winning. And they won a lot. In fact, the Cubs were one of the best teams in baseball for about two months there. And so by September 9th, the, the play, they had a 92% chance of making the playoffs. Things were looking really good for the Cubs. But then, they just fell off a cliff. The bullpen wore down. They stopped getting the big hit. The defense made some awful errors. And in three weeks, their playoff chances went from 92% to zero, and they missed out in the playoffs. But again, Cubs fans are ecstatic because they were competitive to the end, right? No, they were furious, not that they didn't make the playoffs. That's a silly illustration, but, but isn't that how we all are? You know, we say, if I just get this one thing, I'll be happy. And then we get it, and then we want more. We think we deserve it, and we think we deserve more. Yeah, just, I mean, you, you think, no, that's not me. Well, just imagine explaining to your 20-year younger self why you are angry that you can't download a video onto your phone from your car. <laughs> right? Like your 20-year your younger self would look at you like you're mad. Download a video in your car on your phone? That's impossible. And yet we get mad when we can't do something like that because we think we're entitled to it. Even though most of human history, people couldn't have even dreamed of doing such a thing. 
We are ridiculous people sometimes. We are so entitled and so proud and never satisfied. And it's a problem. But our text for today warns us that that silliness becomes deadly when when that arrogance affects how I see God and how I see other people. So let's read Romans 11, beginning in verse 17. It says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So we've been talking about this, uh, the, these issues that the, the Roman church is enduring. And of course, this Jew-Gentile conflict that they have is, is kind of distant from our situation. But the entitlement that is at the heart of their, their struggles is very familiar to all of us. And in this passage, God confronts your pride, your arrogance, and your sense of entitlement. But, but to appreciate that all the application that that God wants to make to us in this passage, we we have to understand how it is that Paul gets there. And and specifically, you probably noticed as we read through the passage, that that the whole passage is built on an analogy. And so uh, I think it's going to be helpful for us to understand the passage if we just take a couple minutes and walk through what does this analogy mean and what are the various parts of the analogy. So, So you can see there that this passage is built on the analogy of an olive tree. And... uh. So what does Paul mean? Well, this conversation about roots and branches and grafting and all this stuff. You think, I'm not a farmer. I've never grafted anything, and I don't even like olives. At least those of us with good taste would say we don't like olives. So, so I'd like to just take a moment, and uh, you can disagree with me, but you're wrong, and uh, briefly explain the significance behind all the pieces in this analogy. So first of all, The root in this analogy is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or or you could say uh, the the Abrahamic covenant, really, more specifically. So so God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All right, so, so God there, at the beginning of his, his, his ministry to Abraham, sets Israel apart as, as his chosen people. He sets them apart for his blessing. And not just that, 
He, he promises that he will bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. Now, of course, Jesus, the Jews' Messiah, is the key to that blessing. And Jesus came. He, he died on the cross. He provided salvation for, for everyone who believes. And so Romans 4.16 says that everyone that is saved, not just the Jews, is a child of Abraham. So, so in this analogy of the olive tree, the source of life, the rich root of the tree, as verse 17 says, is the, the, the promise to Abraham, which came to fruition in Jesus. So, so salvation in Christ is the root. And then, secondly, the, the, the tree in the analogy is the people of God. So Galatians 3, 7 says that those who are of faith, meaning Jews and Gentiles in every age, that, that we are sons of Abraham. So, so the tree here represents everyone, in every, everyone since the time of Abraham, and everyone into the future who will be saved in Jesus. And then third, the natural branches are the ethnic Israelites. That makes sense, right? That the root is Abraham. And so the natural branches coming off that root are going to be the descendants of Abraham, the Jews. Now, of course, being a Jew in and of itself doesn't save anyone, right? Because he talks about how the Jews had rejected Christ, and so most of them had been cut off from the tree. But then finally, the wild branches in the analogy are Gentile Christians. Now, obviously, we Gentile Christians, most of us in this room are Gentile Christians, and we are not Abraham's natural genetic descendants. And so we don't belong to the natural tree, so to speak. I think it's also worth noting that, that wild branches would not naturally be as beautiful or attractive or fruitful as pruned ones, domesticated ones. You know, and, and, so, and so instead, you know, I mean, think, of your, think of a wild tree in your yard or out in the desert. Wild branches are mangled and they're not nearly as fruitful as as a tree that's grown and, and cared for by someone and, and pruned carefully. And yet, one of the remarkable things about this analogy is that God is happy to extend the blessing of Abraham to these, the hope of salvation to anyone who believes. Even a scraggly, ugly, fruitless branch. And so it doesn't matter how scraggly, wild, and fruitless you may be spiritually. It doesn't matter how broken you are how sinful you are. God is willing to make you a part of His tree, make you a part of the family of God if you will come to Him in faith. So at the heart of this analogy is the fact that God is kind. God is forgiving. He is compassionate. And He is able to save anyone who comes to Him. So, so don't focus on how unqualified you are to be a Christian. You know, and none of us are qualified. So if you're waiting to receive Christ until you feel worthy to be His child, you will never get there. And God doesn't expect you to get there. God is willing to graft in the, the natural, broken person. And so focus on God kind, God's kindness. Believe on Christ and be saved. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, I hope that today you'll, you'll talk to someone, you'll pray, you'll receive Christ as your Savior before you leave. So, so that's a quick overview of the analogy. And, and hopefully it gives you just a helpful foundation for understanding what Paul is trying to communicate. And, 
And it's really important because Paul is going to give us four exhortations in this passage, four exhortations specifically for Gentile Christians like us. And they're just as relevant today as, as ever. So first, God commands you, despise no one. Now, each command in our text answers a problem. It comes in response to a problem that the Gentile Christians at Rome were enduring. And so you kind of have to understand the problem if you're going to understand the solution and, and the challenge that comes out of it. So, so with each of these, we want to start with a problem. So, so the problem, the first problem is, is that Gentile Christians used God's grace to despise the Jews. Now, verse 17 describes what had them all worked up. He says, if some of the branches were broken off, speaking of the Jews, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now, now we've talked about this, right? That, that in the first century world, Jesus came, Jesus died, and most of the Jews had nothing to do with Jesus. It's not just that they didn't believe the gospel, they were hostile towards the preaching of the gospel. Sometimes violent. And so Paul instead preached to the Gentiles. And many of them got saved. They were being grafted into the olive tree. And, and again, that is a beautiful image because domestic trees, domestic branches, are, are generally much more beautiful and more fruitful than wild ones. You know, just think, at Christmas time, you go to Lowe's and buy a Christmas tree. And it is a perfect pyramid. Thick, beautiful, everything is right about it. And the scrawny pine tree that's growing out in the desert or in, in your backyard doesn't look nearly as beautiful. So, so why would someone graft a wild, ugly branch into a beautiful, well-pruned tree? Now, now sometimes in Paul's day, all the farmers, they would, you know, you'd have an older tree that's got deep roots and Sometimes the branches on that older tree would begin to not be productive anymore, and so they would take young branches off a young pruned tree, and they would graft them into that older tree that had a stout root, because that branch could, could then produce a lot more olives than the ones that were previously on the tree. But they would never graft a wild, scrawny, fruitless branch into a fruitful, domesticated tree. But, but what Paul is highlighting is that God is doing something surprising and gracious in the church. And God is taking scraggly, ugly branches like us and grafting us in by His grace. So, so, so God's grace in bringing these wild branches in is absolutely amazing. But people are stupid. People are stupid. We are sometimes stupid. And so instead of marveling at God's grace, the Gentiles looked at what God had done, and they grew proud. You know, they, they thought, wow, I must be pretty special if God would reject the Jews because he wanted me. And we still do that. You know, there have been loads of Christian songs, books, sermons preached about how the cross really demonstrates how valuable we are. Man, if Jesus would give his son on the cross to buy me, I must be really important. And I just tell you, throw that trash away. Throw that trash away. If we're going to use the cross to talk about how great we are, we have absolutely missed the point behind the death of Jesus. 
You ignore any pastor, any author who uses the, top, the cross to talk about how great you are instead of how, God, how good God is. Now, the point of this analogy is to say that you were a wild, useless branch. So God's grace is amazing, not you. But it wasn't just that the Gentiles were using the gospel to boast about themselves. They were also using it to despise the Jews who rejected Christ. Now he says there in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, speaking there of the Jews. And so what's happening here is not only were they boasting in themselves, they were also despising the Jews who had rejected the Lord. And they used the gospel to justify pride, hatred, and division. And it was a horrible abuse of the grace of God. Sadly, that kind of anti-Semitism has, has long history in the church. You know, Martin Luther, you know, one of the founders of the Protestant Reformation, used the, the, the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles to say some horrible things about the Jewish people. And of course, anti-Semitism is, is all around us. I mean, even just this weekend, you can see with all that's taking place in Israel, the, the hatred that so many people have toward the Jewish people. Now, now, hopefully no one in here struggles with anti-Semitism. But, but there are plenty of other ways that you as a Christian might use the grace of God to despise other people. You know, for example, you know, maybe it is that you, you live a pretty good life. Grace of God, God has protected you from, from the destructive patterns that, that destroy so many people around you. And he's helped you live a good life. You, you've got a good job. You take care of your family. You, you, you love them. And, and, and you, you look like a good person who has... This guy over here, his life is a wreck. Yeah, and praise God for that. But what's very easy for us to do as Christians is we begin to take credit for what the grace of God has done in our lives. And so we despise the drunkard. We despise the welfare recipient. Nor as we thought about today, we, we, we look with the person who, who advocates for abortion. And we don't extend the same grace to others that we have received from God. And, and, so, and so we need to understand, folks, that there, that is wicked. It is wrong for us to have that attitude. We, we cannot use the grace of God to despise other people. So, so what is the solution? Well, the solution is, first of all, remember God's grace. Paul says at the end of verse 18, if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You know, it's really silly for a branch to boast about how great it is. Just a few weeks ago, I I trimmed some of the trees in my yard, and, and when I cut them off the tree, they were very green, they had lots of leaves on them, they looked great. But just a couple hours later, they were wilted and dying. They, they were nothing without the root of the tree. And, and similarly, you would be dead too if you were cut off from Christ. You do not support Christ. Christ supports you. Don't ever forget that. He doesn't need you, but you desperately need Him. So always remember that you are a wretched sinner who serves an incredible Savior. And stay near to the cross because there is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. 
Remember that the root supports you. And then a second solution he gives is refuse pride and division. So so Paul says again at the beginning of verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, speaking there of the Jews. Now, Now Paul's primary concern here is that Gentile Christians despise the Jews who had been cut off. And and probably, based on what's coming in in chapters 12 through 15, he's also concerned that they, to a lesser extent, despise the Jewish Christians. It wasn't just the apostate ones, it was the Christian ones as well. And Paul responds, you are not better than them. You have no room to boast in yourself. Why is that? Because the root is your life. The cross is the difference, not you. And God wants you to make the same application in many spheres of life. You know, so yes, you probably do live a better life than than some, you know, some unsaved sibling or family member that you have. You've got your life together. Your act is, you've got a better act together than they do. You might be a much better parent than your neighbor whose bratty kids do whatever they want and their home is absolute chaos. But you are not inherently better. Never forget that you are what you are by the grace of God. And so refuse to despise others. There's no room for Christians to be snotty, standoffish, and rude. No, we need to extend the same marvelous grace to others that God has extended to us. Now, don't approve of their sin because Jesus didn't approve of yours. But he loved you. He pursued you. And he showed you grace. And you can do the same. And make sure that you extend the same grace, not just to unbelievers, but to Christians as well. You know, folks, it amazes me how petty and childish we can be towards each other sometimes. So stop twisting each other's words. Do not hold on to silly grievances. Do not. There is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. And if you can't love a brother in Christ, if you cannot extend grace, then you have wandered from the cross or you have never understood it to begin with. So refuse pride and division. Despise no one. And then the second command he gives is to resist entitlement. Now, now once again, we have to understand the problem before we can understand the solution. So so the problem Paul raises is that the Gentiles saw God's grace as a testimony to their greatness instead of God's goodness. And you see that when when Paul quotes them in verse 19. He says, you will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So what's going on here? Well, Well, some of the Gentile Christians, they looked out at what God was doing among the Gentiles. And they drew, okay, I'll do that. I'll try and stand still. <laughs> and so some of the Gentiles, they looked out at what God's doing among, the, among them, and they concluded, they, they drew a very silly conclusion. They said, well, hey, God, God clearly cut off the Jews because we are so much more valuable. He got rid of them because he really wanted us. So look at how great we are. And folks, it's absurd. 
And yet, all of us can easily slip into the same attitude of entitlement. You begin to think, wow, God is really lucky to have me. And this church is really lucky to have me. Now, I'm so smart. I'm so gifted. I I give so much money. And And so God should be thankful he has me. Now, that attitude can really show up in our relationships. Proud Christians talk down to others. They dismiss their concerns. And they avoid anyone outside their little clique of people who are worthy to be in their company. It's arrogant. It's divisive. And ultimately, it is blasphemous. So what is the solution? Well, first of all, God says, remember your dependence. He says there in verse 20, the first part of verse 20, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by faith. So so what Paul does here is he reminds the Gentiles that the the reason that God saved them was not because of their goodness, because they earned it. And the reason the Jews were cut off was not because they were not worthy, because of something bad in them. No, the difference was that the Jews did not believe the gospel. And you did. The difference is faith. And that's a humbling reminder because faith, saving faith, is always an expression of dependence and humility. It is not a, a, a reflection of greatness. You know, when you got saved, you did not come to God as a boaster. You came absolutely dependent on him. You came as a beggar. And therefore, what, what Paul really wants to get to here is that the Jewish apostasy should have created fear in them instead of pride. Because if God can reject the Jews for their unbelief, don't think you're so high and mighty and valuable that God couldn't reject you as well. He makes that very clear. So so don't start strutting around God's mansion like you built a place and like you paid for it. No, you came to God by faith. You came to him and said, I am unworthy of your grace, and you cast yourself on him, and that's how you got saved. So don't ever start, stop having that stance before God. Depend on Christ's finished work. Continue to rely on the grace of God. If I had to pick a life verse, probably my favorite verse in the Bible is Galatians 6, verse 14. It says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, Christian, the cross is your life. The cross is your life. Not something in you. It's your only hope for eternity. You know, God only accepts you because of what Jesus did on the cross, not because you merited it somehow. And this verse says that the cross is the only reason that that you are godly or that you're making any progress at all in Christianity. The cross took you out of the world. And the cross brought you to Jesus. So stay near the cross. You know, don't ever stop remembering the judgment that you deserve. Give thanks for what Jesus endured. And then continue to depend on the cross every day of your life. And and, and resist entitlement. You know, refuse to boast in yourself. If I was saved by faith in the cross, then I've got no reason to think I'm better than anyone. Your boast is solely in the grace of God. 
So, so don't be entitled. You know, entitlement is a horrible betrayal of the cross of Christ. Always remember your dependence on Jesus. And then the third challenge of our passage is persevere to the end. So, so let's read on. Uh, the second part of verse 20 goes on to say, Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So the problem, the third problem, is implied in that warning there in verse 21 that that if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So, So the problem here is that we can begin to take our standing with God for granted. So so Paul here warns the Gentiles that God can break them off just as easily as he broke off the Jews. Now, now what's going on there? Because your your theological antennas ought to be going up. Is God saying here that that these Gentile Christians can lose their salvation? Now, he can't be saying that, right? Because, Because Paul was very clear in Romans 8 that God knows everyone who is truly his child Every genuine child of God will make it to glory. It is a guaranteed fact. But while God knows perfectly, we can be deceived. You know, I've known people who, when they're kids, maybe older, they they pray some sort of sinner's prayer. They claim to be a Christian. but, But they were never really broken over their sin. They never really came to grips with their absolute dependence on the grace of God to save them. And so down deep inside, they think, I'm a Christian because of of who I am, because of where I come from, because of what I do. I deserve this. And because I deserve it, God would never get rid of me. And all that meditation on their glory leads to pride. Pride before God and pride before people, and, and apathy towards obedience to God's will. And they really believe, they may, not ever, they, may, they may know not to say it in a place like this, but down deep inside they believe that they deserve God's acceptance, and basically there's nothing they can do to lose it. Now generally, it's obvious to everyone around them, but, but they are so caught up in their own glory that they can't see what a dangerous place they are in. It's a terrifying thing. So what is the solution? Well, first of all, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Verse 20 commands us, do not be conceited, but fear. Why? Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So so I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care what you've done for God in your life. Don't ever strut around as if, you are big, as if you are big stuff and God couldn't crush you in a moment. Now, verse 22 commands you, behold the severity of God. What's he mean by that? He means that God severely judges those who stop trusting the gospel for their salvation and fall into unbelief. And if you've been a Christian for long, you you probably know someone that fits this warning. At one point, this person was faithfully in church, 
They said all the right things. They did all the right things. They, they maybe even taught the Bible to others. But then this person began to grow proud. They began wandering from the cross. They began to justify rebellion against God. And they became angry at anyone who tried to correct them, anyone who tried to challenge their pattern. And now that person is far away from the grace of God. And from every appearance, they are facing the severity of God's judgment in hell. Now, folks, our God is a loving Father. But don't ever forget that He is not a toothless Father. It should terrify you if you are hostile to biblical correction. If your heart is hardened to the truth of Scripture. Now, don't think that there's just something in you that God can't possibly let go of. You are dependent on the grace of God. So fear the Lord. But then, to, on the other side, we must also continue in God's kindness. Now, that's really important. Because if you only consider the, the, the fear of the Lord, the severity of God, you will be a deformed Christian. You know, so God doesn't just command you in verse 22 to behold the severity of God. He also commands you to behold his kindness. In fact, he notes that, that a healthy Christian does not swim in the sea of severity. No. If you're walking with Christ, by the grace of God, you're trying to obey his will and grow and serve him. You're, you're convicted over your sin. You want to change. Then the healthy Christian experience is one of, of enjoying the kindness of God. So, so stay near to the cross. Walk in God's will. And swim in the sea of the kindness of God because you are always recognizing, always enjoying and, and amazed at the grace that you have received in Jesus. And I want to emphasize that's so important because I mean, you can't, you know, think of your marriage if you're married. You, you can't enjoy a healthy marriage if you're constantly terrified that your spouse is going to leave you. That's not a healthy way to enjoy marriage. Uh, now, if you begin to become entitled and think, why would she ever leave a great guy like me? There's no way. Then you should be terrified. You should be terrified. But if you're cultivating a healthy relationship, you're loving each other, you're caring for each other, you know, the dominant attitude is, is rest, security, and joy. And the same way in your Christian life, if you are in a healthy place, God wants you to rest in his kindness, feel secure, just like any healthy relationship. Now, now don't forget that God's warnings have teeth, but focus on his promise and rest in his grace. And then the primary emphasis here in, these, in verses 20 through 22 is to persevere to the end. Stay near to the cross, boast in the cross, worship God. Continue to walk by faith. And then let that worship of God, that, that standing before God, shape how you relate to everyone else around you. Again, there's no room for Christians to be proud amongst each other. We should boast solely in the grace of God. And then we should be humble and full of grace with each other. We need to love each other the way God loved us. As, as humble Dependent sinners. So persevere to the end. Do not stray from remembering what you are apart from the grace of God and run to the cross every single day. 
And then the fourth challenge that Paul gives is to hope in God. Hope in God. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, and they also, speaking of the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So the problem here is that the Gentiles thought that the Jews were forever lost. And because they had no hope for their salvation, they despised them. And I think we can infer that from from Paul's emphasis in verses 23 and 24 on God's power to save them. He wants the the Gentiles to know that God can save the Jews. He wants them to know that their situation was not hopeless. So so they looked so hard that they were even violently opposed. So, So what's happening here is that the Gentiles, they look at these Jews, they look at their hardness, and they think, those wicked people, they are lost. And they're hopelessly lost. And because they saw them as hopelessly lost, that, that, that loss of hope turned into hatred and despising them. Because they, they, they never even dropped, crossed their minds that God might do a, a mighty work among them. And that, that is really a really helpful corrective for us as well. Because similarly, in the last few years, I don't know if you pay attention to stuff like this at all, but, but a number of a prominent former evangelicals have, have rejected the faith, and not just rejected the faith, but, but come out as very hostile, cruel towards Christianity. So Joshua Harris, who wrote, you know, um, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, the expert on dating and marriage. You know, he and his ex-wife have, have, have come out, I mean, not just as saying they're not Christians anymore, but, but as hostile towards biblical purity, as, as oppressive and evil. And of course, we know lots of just regular people, maybe not prominent people, but, but you might know someone who, who at one point professed to be a Christian, and now it's not just that they don't profess to be saved. They are angry if you bring up the gospel. They are mad at you for doing so. And, and so it's very easy to look at those kinds of people and, and to just be irritated at them, angry at them. Now, it's right to call out their evil. It's right to call out the ridiculousness of many of their arguments. But it's easy for us to begin to assume, you know, that person is a lost cause. They'll never get saved. And because we consider them a lost cause, that, that, that hopelessness spirals into hatred of the individual. And, and we stop seeing that person as a mission field. And we start seeing them instead as an enemy. So, so what is the solution? Well, the solution is to believe in God's power to save. You know, Paul reminds the, the Gentiles that the Jews are not a lost cause. And very simply, if God could, could graft the, the wild branches, the Gentiles, into the tree, well, certainly he could graft the Jews back into the tree since they are natural branches. And in fact, the next paragraph is going to argue that someday at the end of the age, God is going to bring a great revival among the Jews. And it says that someday all Israel will be saved. So so the Jews are not beyond the grace of God or the power of God. God can save them. And and so he is faithful, he is good, he is compassionate. And, And those realities needed to shape 
how the Gentiles at Rome looked at these people. Don't look at them through the lens of unbelief, fear, anger, and resentment. Now see them through the lens of the Lord of the harvest. That God is full of compassion. And God is ready and willing and able to save anyone who comes to him. And God is commanding you to have the same vision as you look at the people in your life. You know, we've been confronted this morning with with the dark evil of the abortion industry. And it is very troubling to think about the people who are profiting off of killing helpless babies. Or or to think that that we live in a society which which increasingly values my ability to, to pursue whatever fleshly desire I have over protecting the life of a helpless baby. And those things should make us angry, and we should resist those types of things. We should hate the evil. But don't ever forget that God can save anyone. And so we should should see every lawmaker, every politician, every doctor, every activist, first as a mission field, because we really believe that God can save them. The same goes for that frustrating family member, that neighbor, that co-worker who is so critical and harsh. And eyes of faith change everything. So when you look at that person, don't see them first and foremost for their evil. See them as an opportunity for God to glorify himself through an amazing conversion. And believe that God is willing to save any who believe. Believe that God keeps every promise. And then keep loving them. Keep pursuing them with the gospel. Walk humbly before them like someone who really believes that I am a sinner saved by grace. And you can be too. So folks, the central challenge of this passage is to boast solely in the grace of God. Boast solely in the grace of God. Christian, the cross is your life. It's not you. It's not you cross is your life. God loved you not because you were so special and valuable, but because he is full of grace and compassion. And so dwell often on the cross. Make sure that that you stand humbly before God, recognizing the marvelous grace that you have received. And then let, let, let that drive you to walk in humility before other people. Let the grace of God shape every relationship. Be humble, love people, and pursue them for Christ because you believe God can save anyone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this needed correction from your word. Lord, we praise you for the cross. We thank you for the incredible grace that we have received. And God, I pray for any who are here who have not yet received Christ as Savior. We pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would be marvelously born again. And God, I pray for all of us who know you. Oh God, I pray that every day we would live humbly at the foot of the cross, that we would honor you as our Savior, and that we would reflect the Savior in every relationship. Lord, I know there are hard situations represented in this room. Give us grace and wisdom for each of them and use us to reach others 
with the gospel. Help us to believe in your power to save, to pursue the lost. Use us, dear Lord, we pray. Give us grace even this week to do these hard things in a way that pleases and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen.